0: US President Joe Biden has said that Russia's President Vladimir Putin will pay for his government's election meddling activities after a new US security report accuses the Kremlin of trying to sway November's presidential race against Biden. One of the UK's oldest broadsheet newspapers says that it's going to start paying its writers for every click their stories achieve online. We'll assess the possible impact of such a move on legacy media brands. And as Taiwan announces a travel agreement with the tiny island nation of Palau. We'll ask our guests to pick a destination for their dream travel bubble. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today here on The Late Edition on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the Late Edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 17th of March and I'm Tom Lewis. And joining us today from Midori House in London are Monocle's Culture Editor, Kiara Romella, and our News Editor, Chris Chermak. Kiara, Chris, great to have you both with us on the programme today. I was having a quick chat with uh, Sam Impey, our Studio Manager today, before we came to air, who reminded me that it was St Patrick's Day today. A very happy St. Patrick's Day to you both. Chris, I'm not sure if it's an annual holiday that you mark regularly. Have you got the Kiss Me Quick t-shirt dusted off out (laughs) out of the wardrobe today?
1: Well, the funny thing is that I feel like St. Patrick's Day is more celebrated in the US than, than it is perhaps even in Ireland itself. So in that sense, in the past, in my past lives living in the US, um, I did celebrate Saint Patrick's Day more, and it was always quite the well drunken celebration, frankly. Um, <laughs> but I haven't as much here, so uh, I'm I'm curious to hear what happens in London uh, maybe next year when we can actually, um, you know, have that drunken revelry that we all love love so well. <laughs>
0: and Chiara, how about you? How's the week treating you there? Will you be cracking open the the dark stout later this evening? <laughs>
2: Uh, not to disrespect um, St. Patrick's Day and its traditions, obviously, but I'm not a huge fan of Dark Stout myself. So that kind of cuts out a large part of, of um, celebrations today. Um, no, the week has been uh, really interesting here in Midori House. We got the first copies of the upcoming April issue in the office and it's looking really fetching. Lots of really quite incredible interviews in there. Um, just going through the issue today, it's just got so many amazing photographs of really interesting people. So... I hope that our readers will get to enjoy that very soon. Hot
0: off the presses, Chiara Ramella and Chris Chermak. Thanks again to the two of you for being with us today. Well, we begin today's programme in the US, where President Joe Biden has said that Russia's President Vladimir Putin will be held accountable for what a new US intelligence report has claimed was a widespread meddling effort sanctioned by Putin himself to undercut Biden's bid for the White House last year. Um, Chris, before 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 we get into uh, Joe Biden's response, which he's given in a television interview, which is to be broadcast in the U.S. tonight, uh, what do these conclusions that were published yesterday by the U.S. security services say? What do they allege?
1: So this intelligence report basically looked at efforts by a a number of countries um, to influence the 2020 elections. The specific focus was, uh, as you say, on Russia. And also Iran, it should be said. Um, And before we get into the details, I think first it's important maybe not to overplay this in in my mind, Uh, in part because, first of all, the focus of this report um, or the findings of this report were that the meddling was focused on misinformation. Um, not on the actual undermining of the vote itself uh, of the election. So there's no allegation that voting was tampered with in that sense. And I think that's an important point to make. In even the misinformation, I have to say in my end, having collection, so many other domestic actors in the U.S. were also engaged in in misinformation. There were so many conspiracy theories flying around from so many different groups that for me, you know, one of the takeaways of this report is, is really just like the fact that uh, other nations felt that they were able to act with impunity, that they played into this chaotic, polarized environment that was rife for this kind of meddling by kind of anyone who chose to meddle, if you will. And I think that in some ways tells you as much about the state of U.S. democracy and media as it does about these countries themselves. Having said that, of course, uh, you know, as, as you focused on, there will be retaliation uh, from the U.S. We don't know exactly what kind of sanctions are going to be uh, coming into place against Russia and potentially uh, against Iran. Um, that's something that uh, will be announced more likely next week. The U.S. does want to send a signal that, you know, despite all the problems that there might be uh, with U.S. democracy uh, and media right now, you know, meddling by a foreign government is not okay, is not something that's going to be tolerated going forward. Um, but at the same time, I think what's interesting for me as well uh, is really the sort of interesting soft power uh, motivations that tell you something about where these countries stand in their relation to the US. Uh, because Russia, for example, really. Uh, as as he mentioned at the top, they were very much uh, essentially interested in Donald Trump getting reelected. So there was that goal. They were pushing misinformation, fake news about Joe Biden. They also, of course, just wanted to sow general discord in the United States, um, you know, just to undermine democracy, undermine the smooth functioning of the u s. Um, and at the same time, on the other end, Iran, interestingly, was also, United with Russia in that goal of just sowing disinformation and sowing discord in the US, but they actually were trying to undermine Donald Trump um, because they felt that Donald Trump was somebody who would be, of course, harder on them, had been harder on them over the last four years than the Obama administration and the expectations of the uh, Biden administration would be. And so and then on the third side, it has to be said there was all this all this reporting, back in August, um, sort of in the run-up to the election, that China was a heavy meddler in this election. This was something that was played up by the Trump administration, many Trump administration officials as well. Um, And it turns out, at least according to this report, that China essentially took a pass, that they they said to themselves, well, we don't really care particularly which side is in power, probably because both have, have sounded off quite tough on China. Um, and the, they'd rather they'd rather not be sort of accused of of meddling and get caught meddling in the United States. At least when it comes to the elections, of course, there's lots of lobbying that goes on for Chinese interests in the U.S. and so on and so forth. So it's not as if they're not involved. But it was it just struck me as when you take these three countries, the difference in the way that they see the U.S. Uh, is, is interesting in terms of their soft power motivations. But, of course, at the top of all that, it's just interesting that all of them felt that this was a choice they had, that they could act with impunity in this way and make a decision. Do we or do we not want to engage in meddling in the United States? You would hope that that's something that does not continue for the next four, eight years and decades beyond that.
0: And Chiara, if we shift the prism to look at the media's role in something like attempted interference in an election, news outlets, for example, being fed false news reports, the echo chambers of, of places like Facebook and other social networks online. Do we still have any sense of how that part of this story is being handled in a broad way? Or is it still a case, by case basis, would you say, outlet to outlet and how to stave off this kind of misinformation that Chris was discussing there?
2: Well, the obvious answer would be that those outlets that do place quite an important, um, you know, weight on fact-checking would probably be able to uh, stay away from the most obvious um, of these f- fake accusations. But I think that the idea that this meddling is, is simply done by you know peddling bogus reports on Facebook and leaving it at that is also quite simplistic it's it's much beyond that which is why it was so far reaching and why it was you know so you know vast because it's not just about a troll or a bot automatically like automatically you know sending in- inflammatory reports onto Facebook it's, for example, about a whole system that creates credible news websites for months and months that run with legitimate reporting just to plant seeds of misinformation in there. I personally know a journalist who's a freelancer who has, you know, a great freelance career of her own, who was approached by a website to write a completely legitimate piece of um Reporting, which she reported accurately herself, Um, but this piece of accurate reporting went into this platform that then later on turned out to be a misinformation platform that had used legitimate reporting to create a base of support, a base of credibility, only to plant the seeds of misinformation later on. I mean, this is quite, you know, um, it's a it's a whole another level. It shows a lot more kind of planning and forethought and it's much more wide-reaching. So it's hard to find a specific one-size-fits-all solution. I would say that if there's anything that the way that we have consumed media in the last year has taught us is that many people have rediscovered legacy media players because they know that they have the capacity, the manpower to also run significant fact checks, significant, you know, investigations into things because you need people to do this job. If you're an indie player who doesn't have the manpower to do all this, it's going to be really hard to do the job properly. And it's, so it is like a financing issue. It's, it's a resources issue um, that obviously goes down to, you know, the value of accuracy, the value of going back and fact checking. But those things cost money. <laughs> and so media need money to be able to run those kind of checks.
0: Well, let's stay with the media next here on The Late Edition, because the UK's Telegraph newspaper, one of the country's most prominent broadsheets, has announced that it's going to change the way that it pays writers for stories that it publishes online. That is, by paying for every click a story receives, rather than paying a fixed fee or for every published word. Uh, This move isn't new in many parts of the media world, but it has raised eyebrows that a paper like The Telegraph is now adopting it. As James Rogers, a reader of international journalism at City University in London, explained for us on today's edition of The Globalist.
2: What The Telegraph is saying is that they're actually seeking to drive up subscriber numbers, something which um, they have apparently been quite successful at. I mean, to look at this in the bigger picture, of course, newspapers in particular and all news media are suffering from the fact that over the last 10 or 20 years, their economic models, upon which they have relied for probably a century and a half, being... Revenues from sales and advertising are no longer nearly as reliable as once they were. So, for any news media organization to survive successfully in this century, they're going to have to find new ways of doing it. And this is what The Telegraph's talking about at the moment.
0: James Rogers there speaking to The Globalist a little earlier today. Kiara, uh, some of The Telegraph's rivals in the newspaper sphere in the UK have described this as a move away from publishing serious public service journalism to more clickbaity material. What's your reaction to the move?
2: I think what's interesting about the Telegraph specifically is that obviously they are very keen on trying to say that this is not going to be about clickbait, but it's going to be about retaining subscriptions. And in this respect, they're saying it's actually the, I guess, intelligent long form material that is the one that actually retains subscriptions. Interesting, but also Ultimately, online, when you go onto an article, and especially if it's beyond paywall, the things that grabs people in initially is the headline, is the first couple of paragraphs. If it is behind paywall, so there is still an element of like at least initial clickbait to to lure you in, and I think also from the from the report that appeared about this in the Guardian a couple of days ago. I think the issue is not even so much that it would necessarily lead to clickbaity materials but just that reporters who are working on you know in in a sense more attractive beats in that they are beats that draw more um more clicks such as for the telegraph you know coronavirus news or large political events or royal content you know though people reporters who are naturally on those beats will be favoured over other reporters that sometimes don't even necessarily have a choice over what specific story they're going to be working on a day because the news desk is going to assign that to them. And also interestingly, I think this kind of approach takes away some of the Legitimate surprise that can happen sometimes when a reporter does file a story that nobody thinks is going to do very well and then it does do very well. You know, as part of the April issue, we talked to a few foreign correspondents on the ground in a number of different regions and one of them um, was reporting from Yemen and at the time was told that nobody would want to read more stories from Yemen. And then her story, because of the, the fact that it was surprising, it was a beautiful story ended up being one of the most read on on that website now how do you prepare for that if your entire system is I guess geared towards just going for the top hitters you can't and you're not going to have those surprises and you're not going to provide as differentiated a service as you might do you know again we can talk a lot And a great deal about the fact that it's the quality journalism that keeps people, that retains people. But what lures people in, it's still the incendiary stuff
0: and chris the telegraph is a paper that's often cited as being one of those that managed to to utilize things to adapt to, to paywalls for example relatively well and relatively lucratively but i guess there's still a suggestion that given this this move this sort of focus on on clicks tied to pay it would suggest i mean it's a pretty big move so i guess it would suggest that there's something about the business model that still isn't quite working doesn't it
1: I, I think that's right. Yes, there is still something about our business model that uh, that is in flux at this moment. But I have to say, in in my mind, uh, in some ways, uh, these two things are linked, which is which is in a way what makes uh, a move like the Telegraph's uh, a bit disheartening. And that's because I think it feels like media and journalism. Um, not only yes on the one hand we have struggled with uh, different advertising models and the rise of Facebook and things like that but we've also struggled because many journalistic outlets and others have sort of very very directly played to readers and and to to profitability if you will over the public service aspect over the last you know even even decades you know decade or so for that matter there's this separation of public service and entertainment journalism, and for that matter, also particularly looking at the US, for example, partisan journalism and sort of playing to your audience in a very specific way in order to get them to follow you, that doesn't really have that public service investigative aspect to it. And I think you know that that does have that does have consequences. One thing uh, you know, jumping off of what what Chiara was talking about there, I think the other element in this is that it sort of divorces, effort, uh, if you will, from, from the way that a journalist is paid, whether you write a 1,000-word story or a 200-word story, whether you did months of investigative reporting into a story, or you simply jumped on something for a day that you knew would get uh, the strong headline. You don't really want those to be treated the same way, although, of course, they are going to be um, you know, clicked on potentially equally, but one offers a greater public service than the other. Um, and I think so those those legacy media, in my mind, that have done well in sort of maintaining the public service aspect haven't divorced, uh, if you will, the entertainment side from the more serious side of journalism. They've managed to transition to sort of a subscriber base, a paid readership that follows everything that they do that is passionate about the product itself and therefore leaves room for both aspects, the the clickbait, if you will, the more salacious stuff and the more serious stuff, regardless of whether as many people will click on it or not. If you If you don't do that, then I think there's a much greater risk that all of our media ends up going in a more sensational side and that the public service uh, investigative aspects of the media are the ones that are, you know, the most cost intensive, um, but but don't really have the resources to do it anymore. In, in many cases in the U.S., you've really seen those kinds of media rely on more of a non-profit status these days, um, you know, and, and sort of go down that route or have a, a public benefactor, uh, you know, something like that, rather than relying purely on profitability if you will and you know maybe that's necessary to some degree i don't know maybe that's sort of not maybe it's no longer possible for us to go down any other kind of route but particularly when it comes to legacy media big organizations that have the potential to pull a whole subscriber base that have a big fan base, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Daily Telegraph, the Guardian, you know, all of these big ones that already have a subscriber base, you would hope that they would use that in a way for some good as well to, to sort of produce a whole range of journalism and not focus on just those things that are popular.
0: Well, finally, here on the late edition, travel sectors around the world are continuing to pitch novel ways of reviving themselves in the wake of the pandemic. Mystery flights in Australia, tax-free domestic air journeys in the UK, and so on. Well, Taiwan today announced that it's forming its first travel bubble with the tiny Pacific island nation of Palau. Uh, Chris, Taiwan has been highlighted throughout this past year so frequently for the way it's handled coronavirus outbreaks on its territory. And this new travel bubble is a sort of tentative first step, it seems, for Taiwan, isn't it, back into the international travel sector?
1: It is. It's a very tentative step, isn't it? I mean, in that sense, I guess it, it, it just shows how halting this process is, especially uh, for those countries. It just It just strikes me that there's this difference uh, between those countries that basically are at zero coronavirus cases, versus what we're experiencing here in Europe, where our threshold, if you will, um, is 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 sadly higher, um, you know, and I and I think in that sense, you know, it's it's understandable that it's such a halting step to just give uh, the Taiwanese that little perspective of travel. Um, without taking uh, too great a risk uh, at this point. I think that, you know, it, it's a strange thing, but it does, it does make sense in, in a way as well.
0: And Kiara, I know many of us have been dreaming of a time when we can pack our bags and, and jet <laughs> off somewhere in the not too distant future, hopefully. But if you were allowed to form uh, your own personal travel bubble with a holiday destination anywhere, where would that be?
2: So I have to preface this, as I always do whenever I talk about travel or fantasy travel during a pandemic. Um, I don't think that my parents listen to all of the output that I put out on Monocle 24. But in <laughs> case they're listening, uh, you know, it's not that I'm not choosing Italy because I don't love them. It's only that it feels really familiar and I want to dream. This is a dream scenario. So we have to, you know, think big. So putting Italy aside for a second... You know, during the pandemic, I think, because I guess um, over the course of last summer, European travel felt a, a lot more possible. It was possible for us in the UK to go places for, you know, a relatively short window. But still, it was possible to travel within Europe, whilst beyond, um, it's been much harder. And so now I'm not content with Europe anymore. I don't, uh, you know, I, I set my sights well beyond Mediterranean. And I've been really dreaming of proper, you know, long haul... Uh, flights. I I, I never thought that I'd say this because it's not like I particularly enjoy kind of 12 hours on a plane as an experience per se, but I cannot wait to do a full on real journey where you're really embarking. I want to go back to Japan. I want to go to Bali and I want to go to, you know, California again. I want to go to South America. I want to go to Lima, you know? I, I feel <laughs> like the further you can get me, the better it will be. Please get me to New zealand
0: <laughs> that's quite a long itinerary there kiara but i was also thinking about this i feel as though if i was forced to choose a bubble somewhere maybe it would be kind of fun to go somewhere you didn't know i guess the idea of bubbles is, that is potentially somewhere not too far away and, you know, maybe somewhat familiar. But I was thinking actually of a place that I, I did a story that was commissioned by you, I think, by, a couple of years ago for an edition of The Escapist to the Gulf Islands off the coast of Vancouver. And it was only a two or three day trip, but it felt so remote. And it's like a seaplane ride away from, from Vancouver downtown. So it's not very not very remote, <laughs> not very far away. But the only way to get around was by hiring a scooter. So like scooting up through this sort of woodland <laughs> along the one road along the island Island, seeing deer dash out into the roads, it was just so magical. And only two days, as I say, but it felt like it felt like much longer and a total sort of world away from from everything else. And I think I don't know. I've sort of been dreaming of that experience during all this. Chris, if, to put you on the spot, where would your dream travel bubble be?
1: Oh gosh, after the two of you, I feel I'm going to be so predictable. It's awful, <laughs> but I'm just going to say I have so completely missed skiing and the Alps, and uh, so I'm not I'm not going to go. Um, uh, with my, my my parents in Vienna necessarily, uh, but hi, mom and dad. And uh, instead, I would say it'd <laughs> be lovely to have a travel corridor straight to my favorite ski resort of Oberthoen, uh in Salzburg. Uh, if I could just go there and spend two weeks, three weeks, a month, just forget about everything, that would be the absolute benefit uh, for me.
0: Well, here's hoping we will get to back our bags someday soon. Chris Chermak and Chiara Romella, thanks ever so much, as always, for joining us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. A big thank you, too, to Sam Impey, who edited today's programme in London. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Thomas Lewis, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.